Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. So welcome to the Brave Bold Brilliant podcast. I'm your host, Jeanette Linfoot, and I am joined today by a very inspiring woman. She uh, was a journalist at the BBC for, gosh, 14 years. Um, Prior to that was in local radio, Piccadilly Radio up in Manchester of all places. So it was a sort of a local news girl. Um, actually pivoted and came out of uh, journalism and really retrained as a leadership and life um, coach and now has some incredible clients, the BBC, Saatchi and Saatchi, Barclays. And, you know, this is going to be such a fascinating interview. So I'm delighted to welcome Sue Belton to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I forget about the pivoting word. Back back when I did it, it wasn't known as pivoting. It was just... <laughs> There's no such thing as pivoting uh, 12 years ago or 14 years ago. Yeah, that's well, right. It, well, it makes it sound so much more um, like intended, doesn't it? I actually just made a change. <laughs> pivoted, you know, I just pivoted. wonderful well we're going to talk all about your pivoting or changing (laughs) so so a great place to start if you're okay is just take us through your journey where life started for you and and kind of bring us up to date and then we'll pick a lot up on various bits along the way if that's okay yeah sure well it all started I was born and brought up in Germany my dad was a sergeant major in the army so I had quite an unconventional upbringing so we used to move around every two years And I think actually, God, I'm only just thinking about this now, that is really what made me be able to adapt to any given situation and also be super interested in people because I was meeting new people every two years. Mm. Um, So very interesting childhood. And I only um, came to England when I was 10 years old. And I do vividly remember how dirty the streets were compared to those of Germany. (laughs) And that was what I really remembered. You know, when I came to this country, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I went to a girls' grammar school. It was actually Margaret Thatcher's old school in Grantham, so I'm from Lincolnshire. And um, I did so badly in my A-levels because I was a bit of a party girl. I did so badly that I just got onto. I, I didn't get any of my places, so I wanted to do... My, my childhood dream was to be a Blue Peter TV presenter. And I, so I wanted to do a media course, but I didn't get any of the places because of my results. And then I, so I just, and my dad said to me, if you want to stay and retake your A-levels, you need to get a full-time job as well. And you'll be living at home. And I just thought, I just got to get out. Because <laughs> I don't know about you, Jeanette, but my relationship with my dad when I was 17, 18 was, you know, fractious to say the least. <laughs> So I got out, I got onto a media course. I did a, then I went on to do a postgraduate um, in broadcast journalism. And that's how I ended up at Piccadilly Radio, Hallam FM in the news. And it was definitely when I look back now and what I know about um, imposter syndrome and all of that area, it was really to prove that I, you know, to be taken seriously to be thought of as, you know, I had a brain on me, to be taken seriously, especially as a young woman 
um, as well, because there was lots of stuff happening around that as well. So that was my, that was the start of it all. And I don't know if you remember Video Diaries and Video Nation years ago. Yes. Remember those? I mean, that's how, you know, because I'm 49 now, just. And that's what I always wanted to work on. And back then I didn't realize, but it was always about, I really wanted everybody to have a voice. You know, you know, where they used to give cameras to Joe blogs on the street, different kinds of people, train them up to give video diaries of their lives. And for me, that was just heaven, you know, really helping people share their own stories. And underneath that, then even back then was my wish to show people that, you know, there is a different way to live. It doesn't have to be the way you were brought up for it to be. There are so many different ways to live out there. Um, and so that's when I came to London, cut my teeth, got in there, just kept pestering, pestering, pestering with ideas, ideas, ideas. That's how I got into the BBC. They took me on for two weeks and then it just carried on and on and on. And again, then I wanted to go up to the fifth floor, which was like, woo, the holy grail of documentaries. Again, I pestered, pestered, pestered with ideas until they kind of gave in and went, right, okay, we'll have you on this documentary. Uh, And that was about male strippers in Wales. (laughs) That was my first documentary that I worked on was a group of male strippers that went around the men's working clubs. And I kid you not, there was a meat raffle, a joint of meat raffle, then the male strippers, different kind of meat. (laughs) That was my first experience in documentaries. So, yeah, that's that. That's that whole area of my life. Fantastic. Fantastic. So we'll we'll touch on the on the sort of the changeover in terms of leadership and life coach. But just a couple of things to pick up on, Sue, if I may. Um, You know, you talked about a relatively transient childhood, you know, and and being a military family is not easy, is it? You know, in terms of building relationships and always moving, etc. How do you think that sort of influenced you or impacted on you as a relatively young woman starting out your career and trying to make it in the world of journalism or or did it not have an impact at all do you think oh god it all you know everything what from what I know now psychology all has an impact especially those first seven years yeah I mean so I I think for me it was very typical that I would go from one place to the other and I would go from Lancaster up to Cumbria down to Manchester down to London that was normal for me so I think there was a definite pro that it made me not see anywhere as off limits compared to a lot of my friends in my school who've been in Grantham their whole life that that was that would just be a real stretch and quite fearful but for me that was normal Mm. um I definitely do think though that um you know endings or endings of relationships weren't dealt well with you know you were with somebody for two years you were friends with them then they were gone you know I think that was difficult and I think but what it made me do was when I did settle I settled and I formed a very close group of friendships Mm. you know and I was an only child as well so my friends are like my sister's and to this day, we have an annual, we've just had my annual birthday lunch, but this time via Zoom um, because of what's going on. But for me, my friendships are huge. They are my family. They're like my, cho- they are my chosen family. Mm, interesting. I think it made it massively important for yeah. me. 
Yeah. And and your dad being a sergeant major um, in the army, you know, was discipline quite a big part of growing up as well? Or, and did that, I know you mentioned earlier, sort of this fractious relationship with your dad when you were, you know, 17 or whatever, that sort of age, which is common, I think. Oh, um, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, the rebel in you, did that bring out the rebel in you then, the sort of the, the discipline of, of being from, you know, your dad being a sergeant major or was it very different at home? Yeah, no, I, I am a bit of a rebel, actually, well picked up on. I am a bit of a rebel. And, you know, my dad wanted me to go into the army and be an officer. You know, and when I'm like, oh, I can't imagine I don't want to be in uniform. And I went and worked in the media. But actually, my, all my friends go, Sue, you'd have been great in the army. It would really suit you because I am quite... Um, you know, I don't know what the word is, not all authoritarian, but I am quite direct and to the point, you know, even, you know, with my clients, even I'm like, you know, this is it, this is what I'm seeing, I'm quite direct. Um, But also what I do now realise is my dad was in the army, then he went and worked in the local council. And I joined, I ended up in the BBC, which I would class as like the civil service of the media. (laughs) Yes. You know? (laughs) And I was really afraid of going out on my own and being freelance. I had loads of ideas, but I was, it was too scary for me to leave that kind of environment back then, you know, because it was all about having a stable income, all of that kind of stuff. So it did, that, that did hold me back for sure. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I mean, and you were at the Beeb for 14 years. So that's a long, a good chunk of your career, wasn't it, Sue? And um, and obviously doing very well, you know, in terms of progressing your career and following your dream of journalism, etc. So, but you, you decided to make a change. Um, do you want to just talk us around what that change was? What led up to it and, and kind of what happened in that part of your journey? Yeah, I mean, I was all set. I had my daughter, so I was a geriatric mother at 34, don't you know? You know. (laughs) Um, So I had my daughter and I was all set to go back working at the BBC. You know, typical story of, yeah, it's not going to change my life. I already had my mum lined up to look after my daughter part-time. Well, it all went tits up, basically. My mum broke her wrist. My then partner's mum had to come and look after her. I went back to work. Um, but I did have anxiety, um, like heightened anxiety, OCD. And I remember absolutely visibly, I used to run up my road to get back to Amelie. That's my daughter. At the mm. end of the day, I hated it. And I remember walking through the door and being at the door frame and holding onto the door frame because I could just see her. She was all red and floppy on my mother-in-law's knee. She was ill. Mm. And it was just, it was just, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be doing this. It's not right for me. Mm. And it, I kind of, I went downhill quite quickly then. And I was signed off um, with anxiety, with depression. You know, it's classed as postpartum depression, whatever you want to call it. Mm. Um, and I did really go down. You know, I got to a point where I couldn't leave the house. Uh, if I went on public transport, I remember going to a, a works do, you know, still in contact with everybody. And I had a panic attack. So I had to get into it, you know, or lots of stuff. Um, And it was during that time, it's like, what am I going to do? And then were coming the voluntary redundancies. And I always joke, I was like one of the first to call up and go, just give me it. I just need to go. You know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I had to not be doing what I'm doing. Mm. And I think like most people who come to see me, I'd felt like that for a couple of years before. 
Right. You know, I felt it wasn't really it for me. I wasn't making the kind of films I want. I purpose and meaning and showing people they always have a choice was really important. And I ended up working on some stuff that wasn't really doing that. It was a bit trivial, a bit superficial. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I was not happy with some of the ethics of TV program making. Okay. So we would. I've spoken quite vocally about this. You know, we would they would send me in because I was always very good at holding space and making people feel comfortable to share deeper stuff. So I worked on stuff in women's prisons. I worked on quite some gritty subjects dealing with, you know, things. Um, And I really remember speaking to a mother whose teenage son had been stabbed, you know, and she poured her heart out to me. And typical me at the end was like, you know, if I can help you with anything. And she said, yeah, what? And it was true. This was the bit that didn't sit with me. We get them to open up voluntarily mm. and then we just leave them in it. Mm. And it was like, I wanted to, I wanted to do the next bit. Yeah. It was the next bit. Okay. What supporting somebody through that, getting through it and then moving through that to come out of it the other side. And that was the missing bit for me. So I looked into training to be a psychotherapist. I met a coach in a park former BBC producer randomly in a mum's group and I was like oh that sounds interesting researched it because I'm a researcher um and I had my first coaching session uh, with a woman called Judy Judy Rich and I was in a pretty bad place and she took me from a very bad place to a place of hope within 45 minutes on the phone mm-hmm. she moved me she did all this weird stuff moving me around the room da 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 but literally changed how I felt and what I was then able to do and I was like whoa this is good incredibly powerful yeah incredibly powerful and like you say you know probably just came at the right time you know for you and not necessarily saying it's fate you know because whether you believe in that kind of thing or not but sometimes things just seem to you attract things into your life at a time when you're searching for something and it sounds like that was probably one of those pivotal moments pivotal again um pivotal moment for you sue so 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 from that point then um and and you talked a little bit around sort of ethics and your values mm-hmm. and being congruent doing something that was congruent with your with your values and and following that passion and that next phase of helping people almost feeling that you'd taken the almost taken the cloak off these people and made them not you made them but they become more vulnerable but but through that process and then you wanting to help and and make a difference so so once you'd had that impact yourself of that coaching session what happened after that yeah I mean I, I again you know because I'm a super cynical journalist you know I used to work on watchdog and rogue traders so I'm super cynical so <laughs> I did a lot of research and I found a lot of very bad coaching courses Mm. then I found a very good one and that was it for me and I remember coaching my first client she was a dear friend of mine who who is no longer with us she died since but again within just like 30 minutes I shifted her out of something into a better place where she was able to then take action on something she'd wanted to do for years Mm. in 30 minutes I was like, oh my God, this is good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and coaching is different to mentoring. I do a lot of mentoring. I'm not a trained coach, but yes. you're, you're right. It's, it's to have a meet, help someone um, to create 
you know, something of meaning for themselves. And of course, you're not there to give the answers, are you? You're there to maybe ask some probing questions or to, to help people see for themselves and then ultimately take the action they need to take. But it's incredibly rewarding, isn't it? It's it's something quite special. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, you know, and then, you know, since I learned all about the neuroscience of it, you know, we literally are rewiring the brain. Mm. You know, we literally are, and you can do that in 30 minutes. And it's just like, oh my God. So, you know, it's like that thing that you don't have to be struggling. You don't have to be in a certain situation. You can always change it. That's the bit. That was the bit for me. Because I'm a very proactive person and action, action. That was the bit for me. Yeah. Mm, mm. And and so, so you've since gone on. I mean, obviously the coaching and the leadership coaching that you do as well as life coaching, and you've got some pretty big clients, haven't you? Or you've had some pretty big clients. Do you want yeah. to talk? I mean, some really big sort of corporate names there. But is it always one-to-one coaching that you do, Sue? Or do you work with sort of, you know, executive boards or groups of people in different times? Or what, what's the focus? Yeah, no, I absolutely, my heaven is one-on-one. Mm. one-on-one executive coaching and I especially love working with people who are super cynical (laughs) super cynical people they have got so much more to get out of it because cynicism is always fear-based and trauma-based and all of that kind of base so my absolute heaven is is the one-on-one executive um coaching like I say with people who um and it is my corporate work is largely with men actually but it is those guys who are absolutely excellent super super intelligent and smart technically excellent but perhaps need to bring up their soft skills or emotional intelligence Mm. which is as you can imagine now more important than ever so it's that whole thing around being much more self-aware of their own emotions and able to manage them which is more important now during times of stress where we can become very unconscious Mm. in our fear patterns and our fight patterns, our flight patterns. Um, And not only being able to do that for themselves, but also their teams, their people they work for. Again, which is even more important now with remote working Mm. to really be able to tune into what's underneath and what's happening for people beneath the surface. Mm. And so you said you mainly work with guys. Is that a conscious choice or is it just how it's worked out? What what do you think is behind that? No, um, I do wonder whether it is the military background thing, because mm. because what actually it is my story. So I was brought up in a way not to be emotional, mm. not to have emotions, because emotion in the military, if you think about it, it, they, they don't serve. You're not supposed to. Have. So I was brought up in a way which is very similar, I think, to a way a lot of men are brought up. Mm. So that whole emotional side is not developed. They're super, super intellectual, super practical, super process driven. And I do tend to attract clients who are in the more technical spaces now. So insurance, finance, engineering, that whole area where the focus is on the process and the doing. So what we do is work on bringing up all the emotional intelligence and then, wow, what a combination that is in terms of leadership. 
Yeah. Oh, that's really fascinating. I think you're right as well. You know, it doesn't really matter whether you're male or female, but there's a lot of kind of societal pressure on, you know, how you think you should behave or look or speak or act. And and in especially in, so if you've got a very senior role, you know, you you feel that pressure. It's quite lonely at the top, isn't it? And, um, And actually as a guy, as a woman, you're probably a bit more equipped to be able to share your emotions and let that come out more. If anything, women are probably trying to do the opposite suppress that side a little bit more sometimes (laughs) yeah well it's all about the conditioning what we're told what we're brought up to behave like be like act like Mm. um yeah and a lot of the time that is to not be not show emotions not show weakness and to be called you know sensitive if you do and not in a good way yeah, 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 exactly. And what are the common themes then? I mean, obviously, every single client you have is different, different circumstances, and that everyone's an individual. But there, I mean, I see from my mentee clients, there are some common themes that you know yeah. recur. Um, yeah. What What are the sort of things, without betraying any confidences, but just some common common areas that you see that you see quite regularly? Yeah. So three in terms of my leadership work, the three common areas. The first one is absolute dreadful work life balance. Yeah. Stress to the max, which is exacerbated by now because there's blurred boundaries. There Mm -hmm. are no actual boundaries to stop working. Um, Poor work-life balance, high levels of anxiety, high levels of stress, and not being able to switch off and be present with their families. So even when they're with their families, they're not present with their families. So that's the first area. Yeah. Um, The second area is the um, lack of emotional intelligence skills, so the soft skills. So being able to be with conflict, being able to be around other people's emotions, being able to hold people in that, and also being aware of what their own emotions are. Yeah. And using those as, you know, emotions are information and data. But often in Western society, we're conditioned to not even, what do you mean? I don't, I don't, I don't want emotions. Can't I just get rid of them? Mm. I was, I was asked that the other day, we were coaching around um anger and it was actually a woman and she said I just don't want to feel it I don't want to feel the anger can't we do that and I was like sorry no it's information it's data yeah so that's a huge emotional intelligence is amazing for leadership Mm. so that's a huge that's the second biggest area and the third area is about impact and purpose So, and I think this is more and more important for leaders to be looking at their personal brand. That's the surface bit, bit, but also underneath really knowing what they stand for, why they're here. We all do have a purpose. Yes, I absolutely hold that. So for example, one client I had, you know, he was ready to jack it in, but he was a rising star on his way up. They're investing in him. They wanted him to go all the way, but he was like, I don't know why I'm doing it anymore. Mm. so you know with him I we identified and he wants to completely change stuff within his industry and that's got the fire in his belly he's off yeah yeah you know so that's the third piece is impact purpose yeah and I completely agree with you you know and I think also it sort of can come with a bit of age and experience. You know, I think when you're in your twenties or even in your thirties, you're, you're normally, you know, you might have a, a slight plan, career plan or life plan, but you don't, I, I don't think people necessarily are 
make such a conscious choice about that. You know, I know myself in my, it's probably in my forties really before I really thought actually what's important to me, what's the next phase, you know, why I'm here, all, all that good stuff. And it's, it's actually very cathartic to do it, isn't it? But it's sometimes we're so busy that we don't find the time. Um, well, it's not, yeah. it's not just that, that is it. And what normally happens to people, Jeanette, is that we are, our whole careers are based on conditioning again. Yeah. When I talk about conditioning, I mean, what our parents wanted for us, what we were told was possible or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've worked with so many people who were doctors, you know, solicitors, lawyers, because their parents were. And they end up, you know, typically it's around 35, 36, going, I don't want to do this. And realizing they never did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it, that's the midlife crisis thing, the crisis being that who you truly are doesn't fit the life you've built around yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and that's, you know, this, the podcast is called Brave, Bold, Brilliant. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, the brave part of things can often be bravery to say, I'm choosing not to do something. And you might not know what the next phase is going to be, but you're prepared to, you know, walk away from what you have and, and what you are currently for what you can become even if that isn't always completely clear. And I think, I think you know, people that make those brave, bold moves um, invariably don't look back. Uh, they just wish they'd done it sooner. <laughs> Everybody, so when, and this is my private clients, the people, my private clients come to me at that, with that's where they are. Mm. Every single one goes, oh my God, I wish I knew this earlier. But this, that's part of the journey. It takes you all of that to get to there. But I tell you what I'm seeing, Jeanette, is um, during lockdown, so many people were forced to face up mm. to the fact that it it didn't fit. There was that dissonance. There was that disconnect, that midlife crisis. They were forced into that mm. during lockdown. Yeah. And I think, you know, as, as whilst it's been very difficult, of course, for a lot of people, and we can't underestimate, you know, the, the human cost and the, you know, the psychological trauma that a lot of people, financial hardship, you know, and, and that's not to underplay it. But I think there, there's also been quite a lot of good come out in, in lots of ways where people have had more time to reflect, more time with family and, and maybe realizing that the life that they were living before isn't necessarily what they want going forward. And, and I think that time for reflection Election, I'm seeing it as well, Sue, you know, and um, that side of it, I think, is is quite a positive thing, actually. Um, and, and so just, I mean, just thinking back to yourself, really, and, and this this whole change that you made, Sue, you know, coming out of the BBC and deciding to get trained as a, as a coach and, and everything, all the great stuff you've done since then. Was there, obviously, you had a very pivotal moment and that that you described before that that scene with, you know, your daughter, Emily, and, and just her not being well. And then you realizing, oh, my God, something has to change here. Um when you were leading up to all of that and you said it was quite a while coming, were you aware of it or was it really that light bulb moment that was the catalyst, the true catalyst for it? I, I would say both. Mm. And this is what I see in most people as well. So it can be a, like a drip, drip, drip. And I did, I'm very open about this. I did the classic way of trying to not feel those feelings so I had a lot of dissatisfaction a lot of anxiety but I didn't know why and I didn't know what to do about it so I did drink very heavily Mm. I did shop very heavily I partied very heavily all to push down those feelings 
Mm. Uh, and that's what I do. And that's what I see people doing all the time. And that's what people have typically done for. And it's really weird. It's about two years. People tend to go through this for two years until they get to a point or something like redundancy or lockdown or having a child forces them. They go, OK, I'm not doing this anymore. Mm. But for most people, it's a drip, 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 drip. And just until it becomes too unbearable. Yeah, I mean, I, I listen to quite a lot of, you know, whether you love him, love him or hate him, a lot of like Tony Robbins and, and those kind of, I find it quite motivational. Obviously, a bit American with his big teeth, but actually a lot of what he says just kind of resonates with me. But he talks about, you know, it's not until your need becomes a must that actually you make a change. And I think there's a lot of truth in that, um, you yeah. know, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, giving up smoking or losing weight or leaving a relationship or changing jobs or whatever it might be. And I think that's right because a lot of people do think, oh, I could do or I should have or I will one day. And it's not until it really, something happens that makes it a must that you really make the change. Yeah, I Absolutely. I always say people don't come to me for a pleasant conversation. It's that they are like they're at rock bottom with it. They've had then they cannot they cannot go on anymore. Mm. And I actually when I when I'm speaking to people about potentially working together, I test it out. I test, you know, how how much do you want this? And if it's not up there, nine, ten, it's like come back when you're ready because people won't until they really need to. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And and for you, when you were at the Beeb, um, and you were you were a woman, a female journalist. How how was it on the diversity side back then? Was it was it quite a a diverse environment, or did you find that it was more dominated by male colleagues? How how was that side of things for you? Um, I would say God, a real mixture. So there were a lot of women that worked in production. There were a lot of female producers. There weren't as many female um, heads of department or executives executive producers absolutely mm. um it was quite um diverse in terms of mix um but i do i mean i it, it's an interesting one because there was all of that at play there was a lot of male ego there was a lot of inappropriate male behavior towards women mm. and abuse of power absolutely um and i do remember and i only remembered this when i was writing about imposter syndrome last year in my book that I had an incident with and I went to my you know re review with my series producer and I was like yeah and next I would like to go up to producer and this is what I knew and I remember him looking at me and with a sneer saying you're very ambitious aren't you wow and it's that it's like would he have said that to a male assistant producer and I think the answer is quite clearly a no mm -hmm. So there were pockets, there were pockets of that, but there were plenty of women in production. There were plenty of women, do you know what I mean, in senior positions. So there was a real mix, but there definitely was a flavor of that mm. there, for sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously diversity and inclusion now, we've made great progress, absolutely, in particular, in all, in all aspects of diversity, but in particular gender diversity. You know, I spend a lot of time, you know, helping women, if they want to get on boards, um, helping them get to those roles and the CEO roles, et cetera. Um, and I'd like to think that the world has changed and improved. Um, you know, I think way back when, sometimes it was almost seen as to be a woman in business or whatever field, you had to act more like a man. Uh, mm -hmm. which is completely 
counterintuitive because <laughs> we're all different and it's not it's not better or worse it's just different right um but it's interesting that you 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 had that sort of experience with your boss um at the time I did I did and it, you know and if you bring it back you know when you speak about women at board level and senior level because I do work with them within organizations and the resounding the common theme with um, senior professional women in organizations is the visibility piece, mm-hmm. is the piece about speaking out in a boardroom where you are the only woman. Yeah. And actually, you know, and I had one who actually was laughed out of the room when she did express an opinion, which was not a laughing matter, actually. It was about yeah. the mental health of a, um, a colleague. And she was the only woman in that room and they all laughed at her. Mm, horrendous. horrendous. And, and we were working on the issue of, of of getting through that and getting over that. And that was the reality of what was happening Mm. in that organization. Yeah. Very difficult. Very difficult. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of times when I've been the only woman in the boardroom as well. So, you know, it's something I feel really passionate about. Um, And I think, you know, your environment is so important, you know, coming back to your earlier point, Sue, about your values and and the things that that were important to you, you know, which which was one of the factors of you deciding to leave the BBC and move on. Not that it was a bad organization at all, but it was just a, I guess, a mismatch um, in terms of where you, how you felt at that time and what you wanted to do next. But um, yeah, it's a fascinating area. I think the whole diversity and inclusion, um, and just and, and also for women to help themselves as well, right? Because sometimes it's the organisation, sometimes it's it's us as women that we could do more to support each other and to keep our hand up. You know, <laughs> don't don't sort of you know just accept or expect everyone else to sort the problems out. You you do have to put yourself into the right right frame of mind as well. But it's it's a it's a fascinating area, and and with the with the leadership and the life coaching that you do now um and you talked about some of the common themes that you you were about anxiety the lack of emotional skills and and um the impact and purpose piece how important has the impact and purpose piece been for you personally and in your journey do you think oh god i mean it's so important and it was even more important during lockdown um, because so my purpose is, you know, I I want to show people that whatever their situation, they always have a choice as to how they react and respond to it. So we always have a choice. Mm. Whatever the situation, we always have a choice within it. So that's what my purpose is. And holding on to that, that really helps me navigate because, you know, there's lots of nice shiny objects. There's lots of all sorts of things and paths and avenues I can do. Mm. But really coming back, you know, and checking in with how in line with my purpose is it? Yeah, it's priceless. Yeah. And once you have that, you know, things feel much more well and good in the world when you're living in line with that. And, you know, it does like, you know, that that client I mentioned, it puts a fire in your belly. It's like, this is why I'm doing it. You know, I'm on this podcast because if one listener goes, oh, my God, um, I might try coaching yeah. now. That's it for me. That job done. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. 100%. You know, it's why yeah. I wrote my book. It's why I do my videos. You know, it's all that kind of stuff. It's as long as some person... Like I was stuck and I remember being in my bedroom when I was on that phone and I had that coaching session. If one person goes from that place of feeling stuck that they haven't got a choice to thinking, oh, I can actually do something about this. Mm. That's what it's about for me. 
Yeah, no, really clear, really clear. And, and, and like you say, you know, we're, we're all human and we can have good days and bad days, can't we? And we can get blown off track. And if you've got that clarity, it just helps keep you grounded. I think it helps remind you, you know, when, when, when not everything's going your way, why, you know, keep going because actually that's why you're doing it. Um, I think that's absolutely, absolutely key. And, and Sue, you, you talked about the book and um, obviously this was out in April this year, wasn't it? The, um, yeah. how to change your life in five. I love it. Change your life in five. So talk us through the book and I want to know, and I'm sure the readers want to know, what are the five? Oh, the five. Oh, the five. Well, I'll first tell you how I got the name. I was downward dogging in a yoga class. <laughs> And it was when Joe Wicks was all, and it was all leaning 15 and all of that. And I was thinking, oh, and that's what gave me the idea because I had five core principles in terms of, you know, my five, I have a five step process that kind of underlines a lot of my work. Obviously, it's different, my leadership work, um, but it, it does, there is a lot of similarities we add in with the leadership work. But so the five steps, so the first one is clarity. So that really is getting super clear on your vision. And I always get people to do fantasy version because that bypasses the fears, the doubts, the conditioning that we have. The reason why any of us are not doing what we really want to be doing, it's all up here. And I'm pointing to my head for you listeners. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's all there. So it's getting really clear and really seriously nailing that down. And then the second one is conquer. And that is about conquering the limiting beliefs that we hold. And we all have them. It's all to do with our upbringing, what we were told, you know, parents, religion, teachers, culture. Mm. So really, um, really getting a tabs on that. Um, and within each chapter, I go into detail and have exercises on how to do it. The third one is choose. And now this is really aligned with my purpose. So that whole thing about whatever situation you're in, that chapter talks you through the theory and the practical ways of always choosing, especially when you're stuck. Mm. But there's also stuff around emotional intelligence in there and what to do with difficult emotions and how to be with difficult emotions. So again, choosing how to be with difficult emotions. Mm. Um, the fourth one is celebrate. And this was the new chapter I wrote last year because this is becoming increasingly important in everybody I work with. And this is about self-belief imposter syndrome. So this is about not feeling good enough. And then the extreme version of that imposter syndrome. So many people, whatever level you're at, male, female, doesn't matter. Again, because of experiences in childhood, we often have that. And that's the biggest one that can hold anyone back. Mm. For sure. And then the fifth is commit. And that is all about the importance of self-care, um, creating space, time to do the work, looking after your brain and the neuroscience behind that and the importance for any behavior change you might want to make in your life. Fantastic. So those are the five, the five C's, the powerful C's. I love it. I love it. And, and what sort of feedback have you had on the, on the book? I know you've had lots of really positive feedback. What, yeah. Any sort of key takeouts from people that have read and done the exercises that have come back to you? Yeah, I mean, I'm having really weird things happening now where people are coming like second, third hand. They've been referred by their sister. I've just had a new client sign up, referred by their sister who read the book and who I've never met. And then an amazing woman on Instagram got so many people of her followers to buy the book. And I'm having a call with her next week. And I mean, all weird things are happening. 
now because yeah so it's quite odd when you put something out into the world and you never you know you don't see do you mostly but mm. because of social media I'm now getting all sorts I keep getting these people sharing on my story on Instagram that they're reading my book and it's changed their life and in lockdown and it's it's, it's kind of strange yeah it's strange how, wonder, how wonderful, but what an impact, you know, I mean, we're talking about, you know, being bold for me is about impact and, and uh, you know, sort of doing the best you can having the, you know, the, the biggest sort of mark in this world and to be able to help so many people through that vehicle is fantastic. And it, it sounds to me, I, you know, that when you raise your vibration, um, sometimes you start attracting stuff to you that wasn't necessarily even on the radar when you started out writing the book and now you've got all these wonderful, you know, things happening, which is great. It's so inspiring. Yeah, yeah. It's And it's lovely to hear. And I've had lovely emails from people, a woman in Germany, all sorts of places. It's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's weird. It's still weird for me. <laughs> so do, have you got more, more books in you? Do you think that might be something, you know, that you, you might pursue? I've got another book in me, but not for another year at least, because it's a big, like, it is, it's quite a process. It is quite a process, yeah. Yeah, how was that? How was the creative process for you, Sue? Because I interviewed another, um, an, an author actually called Darren O'Sullivan um, a couple of weeks ago for the podcast. He writes psychological thrillers, so a very different genre. <laughs> Uh, but it was interesting to hear his perception about the creative process and the rejection and all this kind of stuff that he had along the way. But what was it like for you writing the book? Well, I you'll like this because I know I get your approach. You'll like this. I Googled how to write a nonfiction book and I just wrote it. And I did it. I did it blocked out a week. And then I did most of it on my morning routine because I'm a real 5 a.m. advocate. I do the morning routine. So I did it on my laptop and I just cracked on and did it. And I touted it around, didn't get anything. But again, the tenacity. Yeah. And in the end, a publisher saw my Change Your Life in Five videos and she got it. And that was it. And she took me to the London Book Fair and I was sold to a publisher in Germany as well. So that's what got me the book deal. Fantastic. That was most of it. But the the toughest bit was then tweaking, the tweaking Mm. bit. Um, But when I added the whole new section on Celebrate, that was what I loved because that was really dear to my heart right now. And I went into full flow. So I had real moments with my, you know, my my French doors open, watching the birds in the garden in full flow. Mm. And that, that was amazing. Those moments were amazing. Yeah, I mean, and what you what you're talking about there is uh, sort of stands out for me is this tenacity and just keep going. You know, you don't you only really fail if you stop at something. And you know, sometimes you, of course, you you have to know. Okay, it's not maybe it's not going to fly, and 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 it's you have to be wise to that as well. But I do think that too often, sometimes people they get a knockback or someone might say, "Oh, why are you bothering doing that?" And actually, to stay true to your purpose, coming back to the original point, and just keep going. Um, and then great things can happen. So, you, you know, you have to ignore the naysayers a little bit, as Arnie, Arnie Schwarzenegger says, I believe in that as well. Um, I don't yeah. know if you found that. I think for me, I've always been tenacious. And for me, and when, as you were talking, it's about not waiting for it to happen, not waiting for someone to give it to you, not waiting, just crack on, mm. just do it. You know, and I was literally ready to self-publish because I, I hadn't got anywhere. So I was going to self-publish. I don't care. I don't care. I didn't need the ego of it being published by a publisher. I didn't need that bit. For me, it was just getting it out there. Yeah. 
But as I, so it's interesting, as I decided, right, I'm going to publish it, that's when she literally popped up Mm. and called me out of the blue. Very interesting. When you started writing the book, Sue, who do you think you were writing it for, yourself or for others? No, I was writing it for my typical client who came to me as a private client. Right. That's what, and it is the person who is at that, as they used to call it, midlife crisis point. That point where you go, hang on. It's the point that everybody, a lot of people are at now, like you said, after lockdown, Mm -hmm. hang on. I don't want that life, but I don't know what the other one looks like yet. Mm. And that's a very scary place to be. Yeah, yeah. In no man's land a little bit, but... um... Yeah, persevere and you'll get the clarity, won't you? It will come. It will come. That's what I wrote it for when you're in that place. Mm, mm. There's a great, um, I mean, you'll know all about this with your training and background, the whole idea of this fertile void. Um, yes. And that if you can, Gestalt. yeah, Gestalt, yeah, if you can stay in that feeling of being uncomfortable for as long as possible, creativity will come. You will find the answer. But that feels quite scary uh, during that time, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's the bit that people are stopping with social media scrolling, Mm. with alcohol, with buying things instead. And it's what I did. Mm. That's what people are preventing commonly. Yeah, yeah. How did you get out of that phase of your life? Because it sounds like you were, you know, you had some challenges at that that particular time emotionally and and what have you. How did you actually practically move forward from, from that time? I got, it was on the back of that session. Right. And I I got help. And, you know, for me, asking for help, again, you know, daughter of a sergeant major is a sign of weakness. Mm. So, but I was, like you said, I was literally in that bad shape. It was that bad that it was just like, okay, I've got to do something. Mm. Um, And it is, as I say to people, it is just one step at a time. Don't think about the how, because how is a blocking question. Most people go, I don't know how, I don't know how. Stop thinking how, just go, what will you do? What's the one little step you can take? And then the next, and just keep doing that. Yeah, no, that's great advice. It really is. It really is. And then in terms of advice that you've been given, can you think of the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, no, not the worst. Um, well, I, I, I think, um, yeah, I'll tell you the most ridiculous is don't worry about is don't, oh, don't worry about it. Stop, stop worrying. Oh, okay. It's like, you know, when you walk past a builder and he goes, smile, love, it's kind of like that, isn't it? Smile, love. And I always, I've always got the fantasy. I've never done it yet. Going, my father's just died or my mother's just died. What do you mean? Do you know what I mean? I want to, but it's that kind of ignore it. It will go away. It's like a, a flippant kind of, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but I'll tell you the best. Go for it. best that I've ever heard that's been most useful to me is this too shall pass. Talk through that. So whatever situation you're in, especially if it's bad, nothing is permanent. Mm. It always passes. It's not permanent doesn't sound like it's working for you like it worked for me, Jeanette. Well, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm just letting it land because you're right, you know, it, it, and sometimes that takes a bit of thinking about, you know, actually you're right. It, nothing, nothing lasts forever, whatever it is, no matter how painful. Yeah, uh, yeah. That has really helped. That was given to me by someone when I was in a very stressed out stage of my life. Mm. 
Mm. And that's obviously stayed with you. Oh God. Yeah. And it's so true. And Mm. it's like, yeah, this will pass. It will pass. Yeah. Yeah. And, and your, you know, your, your testament, I mean, the journey that you've been on the, you know, the trials and tribulations, the changes you've made, the impact you're having on other people's lives is incredible. And it's amazingly inspiring. Um, and I just love the fact that, you know, who knows what's next? Well, what is next for Sue Belton? I don't know. <laughs> I'm letting it unfold more these days rather than trying to control it all. Yes. That's my current thing. I love it. Go with the flow and see what magic might happen. Yeah, letting life evolve because we can't really control anything. We think we can, but we can't really. Yeah, and I think I, I think you're right. And also just put yourself in the way of opportunity. Yeah. You know, if you can do that as much as possible, even if you don't quite know how it's going to work out. I always think, how bad can it be? Give it a go. <laughs> well, I know I like that. And that's true. I'm definitely doing that. I'm definitely doing that. I mean, I'm actually just starting up a podcast with two old work friends and we're just going to we're going to have a crack at it because we want to do it and we enjoy it and it's lovely working together and we love it yeah those are the best reasons and then you know whatever comes from it is going to be great yeah and it's in line with my purpose so that's all good well i can highly recommend it because you get to have super inspiring and exciting conversations with people like yourself so yeah good luck with that that's great you must keep us all posted so sue where can people find you then yeah, my website is suebelton.com. That's it. Excellent. And you're all over social media as well, of course. I'm all over social media and I am giving out, if anybody wants a free download of chapter one, that has got the clarify exercises in. It's brilliant, actually. And that is via my website as well on the book page. So oh. you can download that. Yeah. That's yeah. great. That's a, that's a real value add for people listening, actually. So thank you for um, sharing that. I know that'll make a big difference to people. So honestly, it's been an absolute joy, Sue, speaking to you. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, you are brave, bold and brilliant, of course. Absolutely. Thank you, <laughs> thank you Sue. You're welcome.